Good morning. Welcome back from spring break. A beautiful morning. It's hard to get up when it's dark, though, isn't it? That's, that's harsh, isn't it? Our uh, study of Luke and Lent will continue in Luke chapter 12 today. So if you have your, your apps, your Bibles, if you've memorized the book of Luke, all of those appropriate, as we look at uh, a parable of the rich fool today. The book of Luke is seen as a... Uh, uh, Luke, the uh, doctor, his, his gospel as one of a journey of Jesus from those earliest days uh, when we hear about him in Luke chapter 2 with the shepherds and the angels through the gospel of Luke as he travels on to Jerusalem. And so we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12 in the middle of a section from uh, chapter 11 through chapter 19 where Luke mostly talks about various things that Jesus taught as he taught the people that were with him, as they were traveling along with him, and as he moves closer and closer to his passion that we find in Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, gives us a little insight into what's going on at this time in Jesus' life. We read, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Jesus had thousands of people following him day to day, some looking for miracles, some looking for food, some looking for a Messiah, some looking for the word that he shared. Intermixed with them are the Pharisees, the scribes, trying to catch Jesus, trying to trap him, and therefore denounce him as a false prophet and, and set him up to, for failure. Yet Jesus, the omnis- omniscient one, knows their hearts, and he knows their plans. More importantly, he sees into the caverns of their faith, and he recognizes the hypocrisy of their ways. He uses this as a platform by which to instruct those following him, especially his disciples, in matters of faith and life over the next couple chapters in Luke. And so we find ourselves in the middle of Luke chapter 12, where we hear Jesus talking, and it's titled, the parable of the rich fool, but actually something precedes that parable. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them all, Take care and be on your guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. It's kind of nice to know that even the master teacher has somebody interrupt one of his lectures and put him on the spot. This kind of interaction, while uncommon today and maybe frowned upon, wasn't that uncommon for people in Jesus' time, especially when they saw a rabbi, especially when they saw somebody who they knew knew the law so well that he could interact on their behalf, that he could interpret it for them. So Jesus is asked to solve a family dispute with respect to inheritance. Can't hear that without thinking of a few chapters later in Luke 15, where Jesus tells another story, the story of a prodigal son, a story of a son wanting his inheritance, but not even waiting for his dad to die, asking for his half while his dad was still alive. Here, it seems that the inheritance has been given out, and a brother, probably an older one, isn't sharing his part. But Jesus' response is pretty unique. 
While rabbis were seen as the ones that knew that law and could answer these kinds of questions, he steps away from it. His answer is one that will prepare his disciples for a verse right at the end of chapter 12 that says, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. You see, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is also the one who brings conflict, brings division. That's not his plan. His plan isn't to divide. His plan is not to bring conflict. But that's the result of truth that he brings. Truth can't be thrown out by consensus, by majority rule. And the truth of God's grace in Christ through his death and resurrection, we hear elsewhere in Scripture, causes many to stumble and fall. So Jesus uses this man's question about inheritance to teach his disciples and to teach us. He sees right into the heart of all men, and he knows that we desire more, even if it's not rightfully ours, or even if it is rightfully ours. He connects back to that original issue he had at the beginning of chapter 12 with the Pharisees, except this time he's a little bit more poignant. The hypocrisy he's pointing to is one of being covetousness, of having coveting and greed. Sounds like not much has changed in 2,000 years. Hear what he said? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Doesn't seem like things have changed. We need that today as much as ever. A couple weeks ago, the BBC reported that uh, 1% of the world's population will own more than 50% of the total value of the earth in the year 2016. I can't know the hearts and I can't know the minds of those people in the 1%, but the notion of, I want more, seems to be alive and well. It doesn't require us to see it even in those people. All we really have to do is look at our own lives. When we look at in ourselves and around us, we see that getting mine is a common theme in the world. And whether it pertains to wealth or accomplishment or time or vehicles or whatever it is, seemingly everywhere I look, I want more. So Jesus tells us, and he tells his people then, a story, a parable, a parable to reinforce these thoughts. Verse 16 says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, Well, what should I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will, there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What's Jesus teaching? Well, I think there's lots of things, but there's three I want to point out today. Number one, all gifts come from God. James chapter 117 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Well, what are these gifts? Certainly, the prosperity that man in the story had was a gift. It was given by God. But it turned out that all he had including his very life, was a gift from God as well. Martin Luther, in his explanation of the first article of the Apostles' Creed, reminds us of some of the things that God has given each one of us. 
He says, I believe God has created me together with all that exists. God has given me and still preserves my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all limbs and senses, reason, and all mental faculties. In addition, God daily and abundantly provides shoes and clothing, food and drink, house and farm, spouse and children, fields, livestock, and all property, along with all the necessities and nourishment for this body and life. Yeah, I don't know about you, livestock and some of those things don't speak to me as much as they did to Luther and his group, but it's pretty clear. Everything I have, everything I own, everything I'm, I've been blessed with comes from God. The gifts of faith and of life can't just be passed over. They can't just be assumed. They are precious. And they're more precious than wealth. They're more precious than bumper crops. They're more precious than a large savings account. Secondly, the gifts that God gives are to be used in community, not in isolation. Look at how many times the man in the parable refers to himself. What shall I do? I have nowhere to store. I will do this. I will tear down. I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, nine times, nine times in just a short number of verses, this man refers to me and mine. One of the greatest ploys I think the devil does in our world is to isolate people. Isolate them and then lay the temptation on them. And that's not just about greed. That's not just about greed of money. That's greed in everything. All of a sudden, when we are by ourselves and we are alone, the the devil has opportunity to put those sinful thoughts and minds into activity. The greed and hypocrisy that Jesus was pointing people to leave at the beginning of chapter 12 involves the greed and hypocrisy of me and mine. He'd rather have it be we and ours. God's gifts are for the community. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul refers to spiritual gifts, and he says that they are given for the common good. But does that apply to all gifts? I think that's what Jesus is teaching. He says all of the gifts we have been given, whether they're talents, whatever they are, are for the common good. They are best used in community of believers first to build and strengthen that group of of fellow Christians, but then for non-Christians, for non-believers, as we share that grace with others by showing and using the gifts that God has given each of us. They're for community, the gifts that God gives. I think the third item that we can take away is that many times the blessings of this world can quickly turn into temptations. And while not stated implicitly here, the trials and temptations, the trials and testing that we have in faith can also be made into blessings. The rich man in the parable had it all. He had plenty. He had more than what he knew what to do with, and yet it became a trap for him. He got caught up in it, and the greed that can overcome and intensified. He wanted more. He wanted a place to store it all but we have opportunities to see those blessings we're given and to see the trials and testing that we have in the opposite way as well, to see them as blessings. Some of you know about a saint of ours, and I use that term lovingly because the Korean Lutheran High School Saints was founded by a man named Reverend Bill Bartlett. He was the first executive director of that school. A while back, a few years ago, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And after fighting through the treatment, seemingly that everything came out well, he returned nearly immediately. 
His second treatment caused him to have to go up to L.A. to do a bone marrow transplant. And I just happened to run across Pastor Bartlett in the parking lot at Costco roughly about a month after his bone marrow transplant. We had to stay about 10 feet away from each other because he was wearing a mask and he had to keep a distance to make sure he didn't catch any germs from people because his immune system was so shut down. He was a wrestler. He was always in good shape. And here I looked at a man who had lost maybe 30 or 40 pounds, his hair gone. And yet there was something I'll never forget about Pastor Bartlett. Even in those testing and trials, even in his second time of going through chemotherapy, he found ways by which to use that as a blessing. He said the nurses up in L.A. told all of their patients that the bone marrow transplant was each person's second birthday. And Pastor Bartlett, only as he could, said, Ah, I'm a Christian. It's my third. That's the way he approaches, and thank God he's still recovering, still doing well, still keeping 10 feet away from everybody, because he's still going through a process, but he was able to see trials and temptations, trials and testing, in a way that he saw as a blessing. And yet we also see in this parable great blessing that can become temptations. You know, I have no idea what I would do with a diagnosis like uh, Pastor Bartlett's. I also have no idea what I would do with a sudden, sudden abundance of wealth. But what I know is this. Jesus points us at the end of this parable to the place to be. He says, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. What is rich toward God? Well, if it's all a gift, if God has given us everything, he's also given us the riches that come as well. He's given us the ability to have those riches. He does it through things that we think might be pretty common. He does it through things like baptism. He does it through his word. He does it through communion. He does it through a community of believers. And he does that so we have opportunities to share with others. To be rich towards God is not something we do. It's something that God's done for us. But by God's grace and by his love, we can see all that we have in life, whether it be abundant blessing or whether it be great trial, to be ones that are set to make us rich towards God because of the great gifts he's given us. Would you join me in prayer? At the beginning of another week, we come to you, O Lord, with grateful hearts for your protection for this past week and for the privilege of another week of work and learning. Give us wisdom for the tasks that lay before us. Help us to perform our duties faithfully and to find joy which comes from seeking you in all we do. Although we live in the world, preserve us from being of the world. In all our associations, make us considerate and caring. In our successes, make us humble. In disappointments, make us patient. In temptations, shield us. In danger, protect us. And in sorrow, comfort us. In Jesus' name. Have a great day.